Hi, everyone. I'm Ashley Minogue from OpenView's expansion team, where I help software startups accelerate their revenue growth to build long-lasting companies. This season on Build, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I'll speak with tech executives and founders to hear firsthand how they've leveraged a product-led growth model to put product at the center of their acquisition, conversion, and expansion strategies. Now on with the show. Today's episode is all about building for scale. Many product-led software businesses employ a self-service or e-commerce-like model. So today, I wanted to switch it up and sit down with a leader at a well-known e-commerce company. Wayfair started as an idea between college roommates and has become one of North America's largest online retailers. Today, I'm joined by Bob Sherwin, head of North America Marketing at Wayfair, to discuss Wayfair's journey from startup to $5 billion and growing. Bob, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Ashley. Excited to be here. Yes, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. So for our listeners out there who may not know, Bob and I had the chance to work together at Wayfair. So I'm a little bit biased, but I can say firsthand, Wayfair is a prime example of a company that has balanced achieving super fast growth while building for scale. But before we start chatting about Wayfair, Bob, can you share with everyone how you got into the world of tech? Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, it wasn't necessarily a specific decision point. And in reality, it's fairly hard to avoid getting into the world of tech. When I think back on this question, it really started for me at the beginning of my career. When I graduated college, I joined IBM, where I was helping clients as a consultant with, you know, what now we would call like big data challenges. At the time, I was just, you know, a consultant, a data analyst. But in reality, in order to you know, be successful, you, you needed to build up a lot of core skill sets. One, being a great analyst, handling numbers, but figure out where to get the data from. At that time, the data lived in many different platforms that had different code bases. And so it was more of a, a mini data science role and then figure out how to merge these different data sets together. But a lot of these platforms that were programs that we were running then required us to operationalize and productize a lot of the analyses we were doing because the the clients wanted to keep them going over and over. And so a lot of the work started with doing analysis, prototyping different concepts that I could do and my team could do, and then working with IBM engineers who would actually then productize and operationalize that work. A lot of the work I was doing when I reflect on it in my career was essentially being a product manager for a lot of these analytic platforms, building different tools to help uh, these client operations work smoother and work better. So let's talk about how you eventually ended up at Wayfair. And so many people may not know that Wayfair was first founded all the way back in 2002 as CSN stores and grew to be over 200 individual microsites. Can you share with our listeners a bit about the, the Wayfair history there? Sure. There's a wonderful podcast with our two founders, Neeraj and Steve, on how I built this that came out a few months ago. And that's the best recap you can get. Fairly high level, but really goes into it. It started, as you mentioned, as about a microsite concept back in 2002 they grew this model to, over time, about over 200 microsites that were selling very specific things, like a bunk bed microsite, a TV racks and stands microsite. And each of these were running really well and driving a lot of volume. But around 2011, 2012, they realized that that model wasn't going to scale from a repeat rate standpoint. They weren't building loyal customers because 
each of these sites tailored to one specific use case, one specific purchase need, but the customer didn't know that they were all linked together. So as soon as they came in market again for a different product type, they started their search on Google from scratch. And so in 2012, they basically decided to blow up that entire business model and launch the Wayfair brand. And this was before I joined. I joined in 2013. But that willingness to take a profitable, scaling, healthy business model and blow it up because there was a better one that was going to be you know, more sustainable and more scalable in the future, which was to bring these all under one brand, to me, it's still super inspiring that they were willing to do that. And it turned out to be a fantastic decision and a really good thing that they did it. So even in 2013, around the time when you and I worked together, Wayfair wasn't the household name that it is today. So what made you join the Wayfair team and and how has your role evolved since then? Yeah, so I was, before coming here, I was working at McKinsey doing consulting as I had been my entire career at that point. And I was getting really hungry to be more of an operator and just have a little more skin in the game. I was based in Boston and I, I wanted to stay here. And I I was aware of Wayfair, but only vaguely because it was a fairly new brand at that time and it just launched. And so I met a few people here, just kicking the tires, a few coffee chats. And I was super impressed with the caliber of the talent that was here. And then I really thought the business model had something to it. I knew this was a very, you know, an old school industry that was extremely fragmented and it just wasn't a great customer experience buying furniture. So I thought there was something to the model. At this point, it was about $500 million in revenue. So it seemed like an exciting risk to take. The other thing was that they were willing to put me in a role where I was leading the paid marketing programs from day one, which was not a specific role I had had before. And most organizations in that situation would be hiring people that had done that specific role. So just their hiring philosophy around looking for you know, smart people that fit in nice culturally, had a track record for achievement and didn't really care as much about the specifics of what they were doing as long as they hit on those other dimensions. To me, it actually said a lot about like organization and how it viewed talent. And to me, that was another big benefit of coming here. Well, I certainly agree and certainly was attracted by very similar things. So let's get into some of the tactics. So as you mentioned, you started really focusing on the paid marketing channels, and I know your responsibilities and your team have grown over time. But over the years, what have been some of the best performing marketing channels for Wayfair? Yeah, that's a great question. So we definitely started off when I joined and the heritage of the company was around the more transactional channels like paid search, organic search, even Google Shopping, really trying to capture people at that lower end of the funnel. When I joined, the first areas we started pushing on and trying to figure out how to make them work and see if there was a good channel and brand fit for us was around social and display marketing. Um, There was a lot of hype in those areas. People were talking about programmatic. So we invested a lot of time and energy into figuring out how they worked and then just doing a lot of testing and iterating. They both proved to be very effective channels for our brand in reaching out to prospective customers who were good fits for us, but weren't necessarily searching for us yet on Google. So that was one area that, that helped really boost the growth of the business. The others that I would mention that are a little counterintuitive, but have been extremely important for the success of our brands, and we run these through a performance lens, are direct mail and television. And it's interesting that in this digital age where most older retailers are moving more towards digital, 
we've actually found that we've been able to achieve tremendous additional growth from these older channels. We spend a ton of time on measuring these channels and, and ensuring that we're getting really strong ROI. And both of them, we found, allow us to tell a really rich story. They're both visual in nature. So when you think of direct mail pieces, you know, you have a, someone's physically holding that piece of mail. You know, we can really tell a rich story around our selection of, you know, we can show bright colors. It really pops for the customer. And then television, you know, we've just taken a very disciplined and scientific approach to that channel as we do all of our others. And we found areas that perform extremely well, different times of day, different TV networks, different shows that we want to air against. And that's allowed us to, to really maximize the success of that channel and do so in an efficient way. Where most people, the conventional thinking would be that direct mail is dying, no one looks, looks at their mail. That's actually not true. People love getting mail. They, they respond to it very effectively. And that everyone's moving to like off of linear television. They're all watching things on Netflix. That's true, but you know what? There's still a ton of eyeballs on regular TV. So if you use yourself as a data point of one, it can lead you to some like really bad conclusions. If you actually just test these channels, you may find that you can drive a lot of success. That's great. And so, you, I mean, you're certainly hitting on the fact that there's a lot of different marketing channels out there and a lot of different paths that Wayfair can take to grow its business. So how do you think about balancing like all these different opportunities for growth while building platforms that are setting you guys up for scale? Yeah, that's a great question. We, we think a lot about this and we talk a lot about this because it's super important for us to, to do both of these things and be very deliberate about that balance. We talk about it for everyone from a brand new analyst all the way up to, to myself where I want to, and it depends on the role you're in and maybe the, your tenure, whether you're spending 80% of your time on day-to-day operational excellence or you're spending 80% of your time on the long-term platform building and then the other 20% on the operational excellence. But we do think a lot about that balance. And if you err on too much on one side or the other, it's a bad outcome, right? If you're just focused on the day-to-day, you're going to miss out on having a fantastic 2019, right? If you're only focused on making today the best day possible. And then on the flip side, if you're only building towards the future, you know, you may not be around much longer because, you know, you're missing things that you need to be doing today. So we balance that. And then, but I think first and foremost, the most important thing that, that we try to emphasize on the marketing team is being operationally excellent and having that mindset where we're constantly on the lookout for removing waste in the processes, constantly on the lookout for how can we make today and this week and this month the best month possible for the business. And I think what that does is it just makes you more disciplined and makes sure it falls on falling through the cracks. It also helps you identify opportunities for areas of different pain points or bottlenecks that you actually want to build into your platforms over the long term so that they can eventually be removed. Then, you know, when we think about building our systems and platforms, again, this is where I spend much more of my time. We try to think about building things that can scale, that can support our family of brands, that can support all of our geographies and be flexible enough that can support future use cases that we may not have thought of yet. But before we even go into that and start building that perfect platform, we do a lot of prototyping, right? First, we'd start with a hypothesis. And if we can do a small proof of concept, 
to make sure there's a there there, we'll do that. And then if we get that confidence that there's something there, we'll create a minimal viable product, right? Get that MVP out there so that we can start learning. And, and, and now it's a good use of engineers' times to do that because we did the proof of concept. And then we just iterate from there and keep building that platform with a clear end state vision in mind. But we try to get wins, stack up small wins along the way. So going down that path about how you build for scale, I'm curious to get your take on how you encourage your team to take risks. So whether that is when it comes to testing new experiments with marketing or even product investments or platform investments. I think the biggest thing we do on this dimension is just really try to create an environment where folks feel like it's a safe environment to take some risks. And I think the biggest thing we do to support that is talk about everything as a test. We want to constantly be testing. And if people view things as a test, then it feels like less of a risk if it fails, right? So we actually try to use the mantra here that you know we either win or we learn, right? So if we run a test and it doesn't work, at least we learned something. We disproved a hypothesis. We maybe learned something more about our customer or about you know experiences that actually resonate well with them or, or creative units that, that really resonate well or don't resonate with people. So we have that mantra. That actually goes a long way where when people when tests fail, like we just look at the learnings and that's it. And we don't get upset by it and we move on. We also encourage it by have talking a lot about these wins and losses. And we talk about them both equally. One thing I do at a, a monthly all hands meeting for the marketing org is we highlight tests of the month. And I make sure that you know, the test of the month, I alternate between a win and then the next month, or sometimes I'll cover two, the other one would be a loss and why it was a loss and what we learned from that. And I think that goes a long way to taking people that maybe are more intrinsically risk averse, right? They went to great schools, they took, you know, jobs that were very stable careers, they, they, they've made decisions their whole life that are very risk averse and give them optionality and then create an environment for them where they can feel bold about testing new things. That's great. So let's actually talk more about the testing that goes on for the marketing budget. So I know as a former employee that Wayfair is extremely rigorous and quantitative when deciding how to spend every single marketing dollar. So can you share how Wayfair has developed this best-in-class marketing engine over the years? So my thought on this would be the philosophy I would take is actually less specific to marketing. It's actually probably applies to any discipline or any functional area in terms of creating how we've created a, a data-driven and efficient marketing engine. First, I would think about like who we hire. We spend a lot of time recruiting and making sure we're recruiting the right type of people. First, I want people that are intellectually curious and, and have really intrinsic comfort with numbers. We need very quantitative people and people that enjoy that type of work. And then we want to really develop them, invest in turning them into great analysts and great marketers. Then what I think about is how do we make sure that everyone is really clear on what their goals are, what the efficiency metrics are, how we measure success, and really what great would look like for them from a performance standpoint. Then we have a great platform where we have amazing tracking in measurement. We spend a lot of time investing in both of those things, how we measure each campaign and making sure that not only are we measuring everything, but then that data is available to anyone in the organization. So it's accessible on a daily basis and people can 
make adjustments to their campaigns, pull out insights almost in real time in most cases. And this is self-serve to anyone in the organization, but the marketing org obviously leverages that the most in terms of traffic and, and advertising spend and the, and the conversion rates that they're getting from these different traffic sources. And then a couple other things I would add, right? maybe the last one would be, I try to make the targets and even the performance quite public. So we do, we have huddle boards where we, we every Monday and Thursday, we go through the performance of every marketing channel. We track how different channels are doing against their overall growth goals, as well as their efficiency goals. Always trying to balance those two things. Our goal is to really maximize the growth of any given channel, but do it in a way that is within our efficiency constraints. And so not only do we make that public within the team, but we also publish those figures and the narrative of what's happening across every channel in a monthly dashboard to the entire company. I mean, I will certainly reiterate the access to data as being so critical. I think as a marketer, there's probably nothing more frustrating as not being able to get your hands on the data that you want. And the almost self-service BI approach that Wafer has built is, is pretty incredible. And I think is really something that has been able to set you know, the company up for success. So I actually want to spend a bit of time talking about a component of Wayfair that maybe our audience isn't aware of, but Wayfair has taken the traditional e-commerce model and has created a program for people who are buying from a professional standpoint. So it was a team that I was a part of, and I know that has continued to grow over the years, but I'd love for you to share with people a little bit about the Wayfair B2B story and how it's taken this traditional e-commerce model and adapted it for the B2B world. Yeah, that's great. And obviously you're super well aware of it because you were really on the, you know, the initial team that got this going. But the theory and the, the, the thesis, and it's really panned out to be true, is that we already had all the underlying building blocks on the B2B side that could serve a B2B customer in a compelling way. Ultimately, everyone, whether you're a business or a consumer, you care about, from a high-level standpoint, great selection, great value, you know, fast and free delivery, you care about ease of shopping, and you care about like having a great service offer. So we already had this on B2C. What we thought for B2B is that those dimensions still matter. It's more of a, how do you personalize it for these different business segments? And while for a consumer, the selection that really is important to you may be very different than if you're a contractor or if you're the owner of a boutique hotel. So when we are talking to the, you know, the contractor, the hotel owner, what we're showcasing them in terms of selection and our underlying value props and the levels of service that we give them are different than what we give to the consumer because what's important to that business owner may be different than the consumer. That was the initial thesis. That's how we built the model. And it's panning out to be a very successful story. It's growing very rapidly and you know we're still really just getting started in many ways but we're very confident it makes a ton of sense that Wayfair has continued to build out that program and is continuing to serve that buyer so you hit on this before you know about hiring and what you look for in people that you're bringing on to your team but I want to spend a little bit more time on that so I mean your org has grown immensely when you and I were working together I think there were like 30 people or so on the marketing team and how big is the marketing team now it's yeah it's definitely bigger than that globally we're about 350 folks that are specifically in the marketing org 
And then if you add in like all of the, everything we do is in-house, right? So that adds to that. We don't use agencies to do any of our media buying, and we really don't use vendors to run any of our programs for us. It's all built in-house. We also have an additional about 200 or so people when you think about the creative organization, the engineers that we have focused on the different marketing platforms, the data science teams that we use for some of our, you know, hairiest algorithms that we're using to power our bids or to do our uh, multi-touch attribution modeling. So it, it ends up being an organization of, of about 500 people or so. Yeah. So you've had, I mean, crazy headcount growth in, in a short amount of time that's continued to help you guys fuel the broader business goals. So, I mean, I know working with startups, it can be difficult hiring for marketers, and especially in the early days, like they're looking for a person who's analytical, but also a person who's strategic, a person who's technical, but can tell a story. So can you share in more detail how you think about hiring, you know, that ideal marketer on your team? Yeah, of course. I I hit on some of this before, but essentially what we're looking for is folks with really strong quantitative intrinsics, folks that are really intellectually curious and excited to work on challenging problems and want to work on a variety of challenging problems. And then we need these people to be like great communicators as well, right? So that they can work cross-functionally when they need to do that in our organization and folks that can take the, the data trends and apply a narrative to that. Why would customers behaving this way? What could be going on? This is a counterintuitive trend. Why would that be? And doing all of these things is not your typical marketer, which is why when when we're looking for people, a lot of the folks that we're trying to get on the team are folks that would not have considered marketing roles in a, a normal organization. But here, I think our approach attracts folks with very uh, quant-heavy backgrounds, whether they, you know, straight out of undergrad or folks that were in consulting or investment banking or in engineering fields. So those intrinsics and that style is important. We also look for people that just have a real like fire in their belly, people that like, just want to work hard and work with other great people. And you know, probably a non-starter would be if we don't think they would be a good cultural fit. Because no matter how smart you are and how driven you are, if you're not going to fit in culturally, if you have a really low EQ, then it's uh, it, that, that's just disastrous. And we try to avoid that. So, I mean, we've chatted about a lot of things. We've talked about tactics. We've talked about team building. My last question that I want to ask you, and I've been asking a lot of our guests this season, is, you know, you guys have had a lot of success from building an amazing organization But can you share, you know, a time when you failed or something hasn't gone the way you've planned? I know you hit on the fact that you guys have a really high tolerance for risk taking. So is there a specific example or anecdote that comes to mind? There's a lot. (laughs) We we probably have failures every single day based on the velocity of tests that we do. And that's okay. We just don't keep making those same mistakes again and again. You know, I think of there's a lot that were seem like very strong tests that we we're going to run. One example would be for some of our campaigns that we run, we land people on a page where we require them to provide us their email. And we, you know, this goes back a while, but I remember one test where we made this really compelling landing page that laid out all the core value props of why Wayfair is amazing and why you should just, you know, give us your email and come on in. You know, it was shocking that what we found, and we ran a number of these tests, is that that the more you tell them, the, the almost lower the convert the, uh, the capture rate of emails would be. 
So where we ended up landing, the best performing page was one where it was as simple as possible. It said very little. It just basically gave one value prop, had some great imagery of products that we carry, and then just asked people to submit their email. So that was one that was just counterintuitive. And I remember we spent a lot of time mocking up and designing these, these experiences that just looked fantastic. And from our perspective, we were sure they were going to be better than the incumbent at the time. The other examples would be more around like, you know, evolving. And these are, this is more important to me, and I've had more learnings around this, but evolving our work structure, a way of doing things where you just need to be willing to let go of what was the ideal way of structuring your organization at different moments in time. And so I think about how we were so lean and mean, you know, when we were both joining, right? We had such a small organization and everyone was doing so much. And that was quite appropriate at the time because we were relatively small. But as the organization has grown, as our ambitions have grown, as our, the sophistication of our overall platforms has grown, there's a point where you need to add more people to different things in order to keep evolving them and improving those platform capabilities. So I think recognizing when those times are coming and then even getting ahead of it at times before it's too late is important. I know that like what was the appropriate structure and way of organizing the marketing team when we were a $3 billion company wouldn't be appropriate for us for when we're going to be a 10 or $20 billion organization. So starting to build for that now, or at least have think through how you're going to support that by the time we get there is important. I love that. Such a great point of being mindful of when you're entering these new phases of growth and adapting your organization to, to continue to keep up with that. Well, Bob, with that, I want to say thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me and great to reconnect. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators and founders every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Or you can follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture. Until next time.